Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, but they should be calling me the Velvet Underground because this week I'm joined by Nico. How's it going, Nico? I am doing so good. That was incredibly funny. Uh, man, I, it's it's so great to see you. It's so great to have you on the show. Uh, we're talking about Sky High this week. We sure fucking are. Can I cuss? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sky High has been my favorite Disney Channel original movie since it came out in 2005. It's my favorite now, movie. <laughs> I, need to, I need to say something right off the bat. Sky High is not a Disney Channel original movie. It is in the spirit of a Disney Channel original movie, okay? I know that, you that it's say. not actually a Disney <laughs> Channel original movie. I know it is not a true DCOM. Mm-hmm. However, it is in the spirit of a Disney Channel Absolutely. original movie. I feel like it lives in the same place in my heart. I have prepared some notes on the history and they are wild, but to begin with, uh, I would like to know about your history with Sky High. Sky High has been the movie I've told people is my favorite movie since I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Mm. Um, It is the movie that I always come back to. Uh, I'm the kind of person who will like habitually watch the same movie or TV show multiple times uh, as a form of like emotional regulation basically. And Sky High was one where I would like watch it multiple times in a row or I would watch it every day for a week periodically through my like whole childhood up to now. Um, I think it's incredible. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think baby queer me saw something felt something in the narrative (laughs) um and I just I latched onto it I love it uh the cast is unmatched the soundtrack of covers is fucking genius those are my feelings I all great stuff I definitely remember a period when I was a kid and like really into sky high I also remember a time that I was watching it and there was um I I mean something and and it freaked me out just like the you know the climax where they're like trapped in the gym and stuff I remember oh yeah uh, yeah but it's uh, real scary like it is the climax of the movie is legitimately scary which I think doesn't hold back it doesn't. I feel like that's a hallmark of like early 2000s young teen films. Like I feel like they were a little bit less afraid um, than ones that are made now are. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely remember it was a movie that me and my brother uh, agreed upon as as one of the greats of our <laughs> of our childhood. <laughs> it was, you know, it was canonical for us. Um, and it's something that has been talked about online increasingly in, I think, the last few years. I, I don't know. I feel like in terms of this nostalgia machine, it's something that has kind of always been present there. It's a it's a movie that I feel like I don't remember a time where I felt like the general consensus was against Sky High, but uh, it's definitely a movie that people are looking at more and more recently, and it's been on the brain. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like it absolutely has the kind of cult classic um, experience where we all watched it as kids, um, and now that we're eking our way into adulthood, um, everybody's like, remember Sky High? 
And so there's a ton of like completely batshit content about it also, which I think is really fun. I think maybe part of it is just at, at the time that Sky High came out, we were very much, I think, into the superhero period, but we didn't know it yet. And there was still, I, I think comic book fans were wary of parody at that time. And also mm. it was just, you know, still sort of seen as like a, a niche genre. It's pre, uh, I mean, the Spider-Man movies were huge hits, but this is pre-Dark Knight and, and pre-MCU, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, as, as culture has become increasingly inundated with those movies, I think people are reflecting back on uh, earlier <laughs> films and, and Sky High is one that, was was ripe for reappraisal i think because it sort of came like right on the early end of that Mm, yeah no and that's especially interesting in the current time um Mm -hmm. where i feel like every like two out of every three movies is a superhero movie and i just really like the kind of tone of sky high as a superhero movie about the kind of beauty and not being the hero absolutely we'll we'll get into that um (laughs) But like I said, I have uh, quite a tale to spin about the history of Sky High. I'm so excited. I feel like you wrapped me a little present. I'm so excited. So the story of Sky High comes from a writer named Paul Hernandez, who came up with the concept at some point in the 90s. We don't know a lot about Paul. He, He was one of I'm sure millions of people who went to Hollywood and were involved in a few big productions, but never really like uh, had their moment in the sun uh, as it were. But he was born in 1969. He died in 2014. He grew up in Houston, moved to Hollywood in the mid nineties, began working for Disney and DreamWorks as a PA. And it was around, it was at that time that he was doing those odd jobs that he had the idea for Sky High. What he said about it is it was always intended to be first and foremost, a high school movie wearing a cape. Hopefully we address some issues that everyone can relate to. Disney hired him as a writer on a reboot of the greatest American hero that they were producing around the year 2000. That uh, did not come to be, but he sort of uh, gotten their good graces that way. And they picked up his script for Sky High, handed it off to a new team who we will get to later. And uh, not much comes out from, from Paul Hernandez after Sky High. He writes for a web series called Turbo Dates in 2008. That's his last IMDb credit. But there is an article in the Houston Chronicle from around Sky High's release that lists two other projects he was working on. One of them is Mucha Lucha, which was the the first flash animated cartoon, ran on Cartoon Network from 2002 to 2005. And it's not clear what role Paul Hernandez had in that show. He's not, he's not like credited anywhere, but this, you know, Houston Chronicle article says that he was working on Mucha Lucha. So that, and, and, you know, I did a lot of research for this. I couldn't really find anything else on that. So. Oh, wow. I I wonder if it's like a case of hometown, like trying to make him seem bigger than he actually was. I doubt it. I don't know why they would have reported it if it wasn't close to true, but. Yeah, there must have been, they must have gotten that information from somewhere, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's no other paper trail for it. I mean, you know, he could have just been involved in like as a consultant or some kind of uncredited capacity. I don't know. So what's the other thing you said two other projects is the other one interesting. Yeah, the other one is very interesting. (laughs) The other project is a movie called Instant Karma, a live action animation hybrid that Hernandez was attached to write and direct. 
Instant Karma was actually in production before Sky High. It uh, was an idea he had while he was working for DreamWorks as a PA. They picked it up sometime between 1998 and 2001. The premise of the movie is basically that a guy has like a a near-death experience and comes back as a fly and has to sort of, you know, is like coming back as different animals again and again throughout the movie, trying to get back to his body. That's the gist of it. So it's a dog's purpose, but a person. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a dog's purpose, but uh, a person and a variety of animals. So like I said, he writes this in the mid-90s, gives it to Shelley Carney, a development agent at DreamWorks. She hands it off to the writing duo of Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Those two were writers on Men in Black, Aladdin, uh, Mask of Zorro, Godzilla, Small Soldiers, Road to El Dorado, Shrek, for which they were nominated for an Oscar for Adapted Screenplay, National Treasure, and The Lone Ranger. Most recently, they worked on Godzilla vs. Kong, and Terry wrote the script for The Amazing Maurice, a movie that will be coming out later this year. Heavy hitters. Yeah, heavy hitters for sure. They became producers on this project, and they stayed producers on this project for as long as this project was in development. They are the ones who are very much carrying it from one place to another as time goes on. Uh, It first gets picked up by DreamWorks. They eventually are shifting focus to other projects. They put it in turnaround. It's not really clear what happened there, but uh, we do know that Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio pretty much stopped working for DreamWorks after Shrek comes out in 2001. It's possible that just, you know, priorities realigned at that point. But after DreamWorks drops it, it gets picked up by Ron Howard and Universal. They just sort of have it on the back burner for about two years, and then they put it in turnaround. It gets picked up by New Line Cinema in 2003, and they are passionate about it. They hit the ground running with it. This is the period where Paul is also working on Sky High and potentially Mucha Lucha. So this is like a busy period for him. He sort of, you know, has a name to throw around a little bit. And uh, they put a $70 million price tag on it. They hire Digital Domain to do the animation, this big uh, VFX company, and they work on filling out the cast. The names attached to the cast at this point include Burt Reynolds, Mira Sorvino, Dom DeLuise, Pierce Brosnan, David Alan Greer, The Broken Lizard comedy troupe, Gene Wilder, and Eartha Kitt. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And in October of 2003, there's also a name announced to star. It's budding young actor Dwayne The Rock Johnson. No! That's incredible! At this point, Dwayne Johnson had had two film roles. He was the Scorpion King in The Mummy, and he was the main character in The Rundown. They got him onto this project. He was going to be the star. It was going to be like the next phase of his career. At this point, it's set up for a December 2005 release. New Line kind of uh, is, is not super focused on it for a year or two, but Digital Domain is really invested in it. They sort of pick it up. Scott Ross, the founder of Digital Domain, becomes a producer on it. And as that year gets close, they make plans to shoot the film in Louisiana in 2005. Oh, God. No. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So uh, after Katrina, Digital Domain invests in building a massive soundstage in Louisiana for film productions. They're like, we're going to invest in the community, bring back the, you know, bring the film industry here, and we're going to shoot Instant Karma at this big studio that we're building. The studio does get built. Instant Karma is ultimately not shot there with the shooting schedule completely falling apart. I think that uh, New Line sort of puts it 
decidedly on the back burner. And after a couple of years in development hell, it gets put in turnaround again. And then in 2011, Sony Pictures Animation picks it up. Oh my God. <laughs> so it, it, it's, you know, there are, there are a lot of development hell stories, but it's so rare for a movie to get picked up by, by this many studios. Because, you know, there's a whole like rights thing you have to pay backward. Like the more studios that have had it, the more you have to pay to get it. So like, Oof. and Sony had just done Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, I think was their second or third movie. And they had uh, the Smurfs coming out the same year in, in 2011. So they were like, They were building a strong thing there and Instant Karma was one of the properties that they invested in. There are no like headlines about Instant Karma from that point forward. Lucky for us, Sony was hacked in 2014. (laughs) This trail is insane. Okay, what did you find? Yeah, so first it it needs to be said, I think this is the fourth episode that the Sony hack has become relevant. And... (laughs) Second of all, I did have to sort of dig through the documents myself. There, you know, obviously this wasn't something that uh, you're my hero. (laughs) But basically, it's you know, on all their like sheets from 2011 into 2013, they're like first it, it's you know how much they put into it each month and it's really not a lot they, they sort of uh, stop investing in it after a while as of 2013 instant karma was listed as an inactive project the sony files go into 2014 uh, i think there was a point in 2014 where it uh, was was unlisted uh, but 2014 is also when paul hernandez dies so that is the end of the instant karma saga the end of the road for instant karma Sad, but true. (laughs) That is like, it's wild to think that it not only got put in turnaround so many times, but then it got put in turnaround in 2005 and didn't get picked up by Sony Pictures until six years later. Like, this is an extended period of time for it to be dormant and still have another studio pick it up. Absolutely. The fact that it got so close to getting made so many times, there's like a... Ted Elliott and, and Terry Rossio have a uh, screenwriter's blog that was pretty popular in the early 2000s. And they wrote a few entries about Instant Karma and how they like picked up this script and they brought it to DreamWorks and it was a whole mess. But they were like, maybe by the time you read this, uh, Instant Karma will have come out. <laughs> um, <laughs> And they talk about how there were like projects in development in in like variety that other studios were working on that were clearly ripping off of Instant Karma. And like, I think I think Universal started developing a different movie called Instant Karma (laughs) 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 on so many occasions. This came so close to getting made. That's really honestly tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to 2003. Okay, take me back. Yes, Disney buys the Sky High script and they pass it on to Kim Possible creators Bob Schooley and Mark McCorkle. The two of them had been working on a Kim Possible live action film that did not come to pass at the time. They went back and did it later, but it got them in the good graces of Disney's live action film department. They had also written a script called Big Sur for Arnold Schwarzenegger to star in. That was scrapped because he announced his campaign for governor around the same time, like a month after they they put the (laughs) script together. And a few years later, Disney put out the movie The Pacifier, which they say had a very similar presence premise to the, the script they'd written for Arnold. So that's how it goes. 
they come on, they punch up Paul Hernandez's script. They say that they didn't change too much about it. They were brought on because Disney liked the like high school writing they did on Kim Possible. And they, I, you know, I think mostly did dialogue stuff, maybe mm-hmm. added like beginning and ending things, but most of the story was from Paul's script and he was credited. He's, you know, the three of them are the writers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next piece of the puzzle is director Mike Mitchell. He had previously directed Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, and Surviving Christmas. Uh, He also directed episodes of Greg the Bunny, but he was mostly an animator. He worked on SpongeBob, Shrek 2, Ants, Monkey Bone, and Space Jam. He directed the second Lego movie. He directed the first Trolls movie. Uh, He worked on like many, many DreamWorks films since this time. He was especially involved in the Kung Fu Panda series. He's a, a, a big guy. Yeah, I also appreciate taking an animator to be the director for uh, what is a live action comic book movie, right? Like making decisions about how it looks that make it look more like a comic book. Absolutely. And he, you know, in in like every interview he gave at this time, he was like, yeah, I was sort of excited to like bring animation principles to this movie you, you know again you look at his other movies and they're like mid-budget comedies but this was one where he I, I think was really excited to get involved in that animation side of it there are you know obviously a lot of a mix of practical and cg uh, effects and then he says that he brought a lot of his friends from animation on board to work on the effects there were storyboards used for this uh for this movie so yeah there's there's a, a lot of that animated spirit that went into it I don't have too much else to say about the development of Sky High. It was made on a budget of 35 million and turned around about 90 million. It was the biggest debut of its week, coming in third behind Wedding Crashers and Charlie the Chocolate Factory. Got pretty good reviews from critics. The initial plan was to follow it up with a TV series, and they had had almost the entire cast sign on to do a TV series. The only ones they didn't get were Kurt Russell and Kelly Preston. But the film sort of came out as an underdog, uh, I think, more so than Disney wanted. And what Schooley and McCorkle say is that, well, actually, this is what Mike Mitchell says, but he, he says that the success of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which came out the, say, the same month, and the fact that March of the Penguins was a huge family hit, which they, you know, no one really expected. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, they just, it just sort of um, watered down their expectations. That Again, the thing I said about how superhero audiences were not turning out for superhero parodies a lot at this time. And then in 2016, while promoting Trolls, Mike Mitchell revealed that he was writing on two projects that might get made, Shrek 5 and Sky High 2. He had developed a concept for a sequel called Save You with a pair of writers, Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger, who had done uncredited work on the original. Disney confirmed that the film was in early development, but in 2019, Mitchell said it wasn't likely and that they'd need the whole cast back to make it happen. Since then, there's been no news, but like Mitchell and Schooley and McCorkle and everyone still says it's possible. So that's (laughs) where we're at. I'm holding on to that glimmer, that thread of hope. (laughs) Save You sounds incredible. Save You does sound really good. And you think about bringing Mary Elizabeth Winstead back into it. You think about Nicholas Braun and all the things that that, <laughs> that he can do with it. We'll talk about <laughs> Nicholas Braun. I have I, I, certain thoughts on his performance in this, uh, oh. but just um, I, I, I would be excited for that to happen. I think it could happen any day. It's just a matter of uh, 
time and getting things together. I've heard about Kurt Russell that like in order to get him on a project, you like have to call him with a with a pay with like what you're gonna pay him. Like <laughs> like he does not answer <laughs> unless you have a, a checkout for him. So <laughs> well, but I think that they could get the budget. Uh, just because there's so much support for and like nostalgia and love for that movie. Sure, and it made right money. Now. It wasn't it wasn't like a, a flop. It's funny to think oh, about no. how like what expectations were at the time. And and I mean, you know, obviously as an after effect of the pandemic, most movies are still kind of scraping by right now. But mm. yeah, I, I mean it's it's wild. It is wild. So that takes us into the film. Yeah. Let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has one of the best beginnings of any Disney movie and maybe any movie ever. (laughs) Uh Um, It tells you so much right in the beginning. I'm blanking on the name of the song that they open with. (laughs) They open on Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Oh my God, yes. So coming in, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Will Stronghold is in his room desperately trying to do a bench press and you know you know this kid is a loser Mm -hmm. (laughs) this kid is a loser and that's just the song the image it's so good it's really good and there's a brief uh there's a brief like animation thing before that that's also fun a little comic book uh intro I, I was definitely charmed by it right away. Yeah, I, I think the use of everybody wants to rule the world is so strong. And that's another example of, I think that song has been increasingly appreciated in the past few years. And so a, a, another way that this movie is perhaps ahead of the curve is in, is in just using that song right out of the gate. But uh, yeah, we get Kurt Russell coming in as the dad. I think he, you know, the Clark Kent role is is kind of uh, against type for him, but I think he really does something interesting with it. Just, you know, he, he has sort of a, a good superhero look. And then he, I think very much carries that idea of like hiding his identity, but like you can tell. <laughs> you yes, know? he's so obvious. Just the way he carries himself is so comic book superhero yeah i don't know if there are like camera tricks involved in that but he and maybe kelly preston but he just looks really big absolutely and i think especially in his uh <laughs> in his uniform and his superhero uniform the way it's padded out yeah there was a, a cooling system inside his uniform that makes sense because it was huge like as the commander he's so big and kelly preston complained that she didn't get one <laughs> Well, but naturally, Jetstream has got to be aerodynamic. So no. That's true. No That's room true. for a cooling system. It's, it's really true. Um, I noted that Will has a Jello Biafra poster on his wall. That's awesome. I had never noticed that. <laughs> but also, again, the soundtrack for that movie is impeccable. And so it makes sense yeah. that they would give him like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, I don't know, I always think it's so interesting uh, to see like, you know, the the posters that characters have on their walls and what they're, the taste that they're being given. Because you know that thought was put into like, what music would this character listen to? And I do feel like it like adds something to Will's character. There's also an Aquabats poster, just like, it, you know, it, it does kind of, kind of color him in an interesting way, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. Especially thinking about that first scene as it, um, establishing him as an underdog, establishing him as somebody who's uh, trying and failing to meet his goals to then have that edge of like, and he has like an 
edgy alternative music taste. I feel like it positions him socially in the moment really effectively. Absolutely. I will also point out that the music for this film was done by Michael Giacchino, a, a really strong composer, one who's, you know, obviously very sought after nowadays, does a lot of franchise films, a lot of huge, you know, blockbuster stuff. He's doing the the Batman score and the stuff that's come out from that has been really good. So I, I, I was surprised to see him there. I think this is one of his early, his, his like fifth <laughs> score that he did, but yeah. Wow. Well, and I did like, for the first time in my most recent rewatch preparing for the podcast, um, I kind of noticed for the first time how incredible the score is. I'd always really fixated on the soundtrack because um, it's a bunch of songs that I already knew and really liked. And so I was excited to hear them. Um, And I feel like they were used really effectively, but the score, especially this time I was impressed. It's a, I feel like it's one of the better superhero movie scores. Um, sure. in terms of that genre and the way that it's used to convey uh, specific superhero movie moods. Yeah, it's really uh, effective. And I think, you know, they, I think the mix of soundtrack and score use is, is really well done. I think, you know, mm-hmm. it comes in at the right moments. Yes, and I also love the places they choose to use the soundtrack music diegetically versus when it is like a true soundtrack. It exists only for the viewer. So we're also introduced to uh, Danielle Pantabaker as Layla. She's uh, she's got the plant powers, and um, I thought it was an interesting like like as they're introducing her. I thought it was a really funny line where uh, like she's vegan because her mom can talk to animals and they don't like being eaten. You know, I thought that, that was... was so funny. <laughs> I love a little bit of like animal rights activism coming from Disney in 2005. It was funny. yeah, it was funny. I mean, this is getting into something that happens a little later. But when they're uh, when Coach Boomer is going over the power placement thing and uh, and she's like sounds fascist, I was like, oh my she God. says it's fascist. <laughs> I love Layla as the kind of SJW of the film. I love it. I love her. And also that as kind of potentially a commentary on Harry Potter. <laughs> like, Wait, say more. Just just because like the power placement thing, I, you know, I, I think is sort of a parody of the. Oh, like the, the sorting the, thing. The, the sorting hat element of Harry Potter. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I do think the like, it's a high school movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think power placement as like a metaphor um, and like a a very real, very concrete um, actualization of like, this is the top tier of students at this school. This is the bottom tier of students at this school. And we are assigning you to these roles in a publicly humiliating way. Absolutely. I just, I love it. (laughs) It's really well done. Mm Mm-hmm. Something that I think this movie does so effectively, and I noticed it right out of the gate, is the way that it uses Dutch angles. I'm trying to remember what movie I saw recently. I think it was one that we covered on the podcast, but I don't remember uh, which one. But yeah, just, you know, the the fact that like he gets on the bus and and suddenly everything's Dutch angles, like the way that it's, it's used to sort of draw that distinction between the two worlds of, of like sky high in reality and how those sort of play off of each other. Like, like it's, it's absolutely. Amazing. Well, and again, bringing in the kind of animator mentality, comic book framing mentality, using the Dutch angles for the more super part feels really visually dynamic, feels really um, stimulating. 
I also felt in this in this beginning sequence, the commander tells Will not to show off as some of the kids have uh, one superhero parent rather than two. That was definitely a moment where I was starting to feel the like commentary on on masculinity <laughs> come out early on. Like I I, I think that um, it, it's very much right right out of the gate, sort of playing with that idea of expectations. I like how I mean we'll we'll talk about the the closet metaphor in play here, and I think it's really effectively done in a number of ways. But uh, mm-hmm. y- you know I just think that's a, it's a really good like summation of the of the pressure that's put on from 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 the father in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we see just from the opening opening sequence how much Will wants to impress his father, wants to um, live up to his father's expectations, right? Because yeah. he starts tromping up the stairs to get Will ready for school and Will immediately starts smacking those weights onto his barbell or whatever it's called. I don't know. I'm gay. Um, <laughs> as his dad is opening the door, he's like, oh, 200. Right. So we know he's lying. He's fabricating this image to please his dad. And I just I, I think it's really well done. Yeah. But at the same time, another thing that I think is really well done is that like the, the parents aren't suspicious at all. They're sort of they're, they're sort of credulous, but they just like almost seem to willfully not notice. Absolutely. They're seeing what they expect to see and they're not like they would know if he had super strength because he hugs them. They would know yeah. if he had super strength because he lives in their house and he doesn't break crap all the time. Like, I agree with you. I agree with you. They are seeing what they expect to see and what they want to see and not seeing evidence to the contrary. It's just really clever. It's not something that you would need from this narrative to have that. But like, yeah, it, it adds a lot. It Absolutely. Which is another thing. I think the characters in this movie, the main characters in this movie have really complex emotional inner lives. Like, I mm-hmm. think that they are really well, the the four main characters in my head, at least, being the parents, Layla and Will. I feel like they all have really interesting journeys. Uh, the mom less so, the, the dad, Layla and Will. Yeah. All have really interesting journeys. Yeah, I think there are, there are hints of interesting things going on with the mom, but she's not as much a uh, primary character. She uh, is just not in it as much, really. And might, that might partially have to do with the discomfort of the suit <laughs> like, like there might you know it's gonna be a yeah. practical thing I don't know yeah like um Kelly Preston just not being able to to live up to her full capabilities because of the fact that the suit sucked to wear right <laughs> yeah one of the things that I noted first of all is that the that the commander takes uh trophies from his fights and that's obviously something that is is a is a key element of the plot, but I also thought it it, it was th- this really sort of vaguely sinister thing about the character that I think adds so much, and we sort of see uh, over the process of this movie how self centered that character is, and really both mm-hmm. the parents are, but like especially him, you know, and, and that felt like a really striking thing out of the gate to signify that. Well, and also going back to what you were saying about his presentation of like ideal masculinity. The Mm. self-centeredness, the entitlement, the fact that he believes that, first of all, the role that he serves is this kind of like essential archetypical hero role. And then because of that and because of what he does, he's entitled to these kind of rewards and pieces of his conquests. Absolutely. And he shows them off to to his son when he takes him into the sanctum. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This could be yours. 
<laughs> exactly. Um, and the I like the effects in that like giant robot fight uh, that uh, happens in the beginning too. Just like really good. Again, very cartoony kind of uh, stuff going in there. It sort of feels like uh, feel, it feels like an old kaiju movie. Just you know the the the, the way that the city is designed and the way that the robot looks. It's all it's all very fun. Mm-hmm. And I love the move. The uh, when Jetstream whips the commander through the air yeah, just, and he just like punches right into the robot's chest great stuff yeah uh, I also like the costume design uh, in some of these earlier scenes, the way that Will has like the red, white, and blue colors that sort of mirror the parents. And then uh, Layla's Le- always wearing green. There's just like a lot of, uh, a lot of color, the color theory that goes into these characters. You know, uh, Zach is always wearing like highlighter colors, <laughs> which is really fun. <laughs> yes. And then the one kid, Ethan, um, the one who can melt, his outfits always slap his color palettes because color palette with the orange and the green first of all he is always in it and then the orange brown green color combo leads to some really hot outfits and then i mean just speaking of zach because we're introduced to him uh so soon after this uh he you know as as i was thinking about this this masculinity metaphor with the powers it's so interesting to me how like zach is uh, sort of immediately confides in will about uh, about his powers and sort of his his feelings of inadequacy about his powers he says that he just got his a few days ago and he didn't think he was going to but if he i I, and you know he sort of talks a big game about about his powers and then uh ultimately gets put with the, the hero support anyway but um Mm -hmm. he said that if he hadn't gotten his powers he wouldn't have even shown up i mean just a really striking kind of uh conversation there absolutely well and again like thinking of him as kind of buying into this masculinity associated with hero-ness heroicness i don't know i agree the way he carries himself completely in general he has this like high level of anxiety about being perceived as appropriately masculine appropriately heroic um and so like even just the way he greets will on the bus he like immediately grabs will into this bro hug he fully instigates that right he's all into these kind of over the top displays of a kind of pretentious masculinity which i yeah Yeah. i like it yeah i don't think it comes out much in the uh, outside of the first half hour of this movie but i feel like zach and will have this intimate relationship the thing that i wanted to say about nicholas braun is that i feel like he is one of the one of our present day ingenues and he 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 often takes on a role where I, I mean I think of his role in Succession and how he's he's sort of playing the ingenue object for Tom who is sort of this this emasculated figure who is sort of like living out uh, power fantasies with uh, with him and I think you could mm-hmm. read certain elements of that into his and Coleman Domingo's uh, characters in in, in Zola uh, and I feel like there is you know there's this element of the the closet and characters who are questioning their masculinity in one form or another being confronted with these Nick Braun characters uh I I I don't know it's just it's something that he does really well and I feel like I I think there are elements of that with Will and Zach that might just come from from Nick Braun's energy but I feel like Mm -hmm. there's a level at which it's there I wish it was there more uh but yeah Mm -hmm. Well, and I like, I love that reading, um, because with the dramatic irony of the 
um, of Nicholas Braun's character, Zach, saying that he wouldn't have shown up if he hadn't gotten his powers to Will, who he assumes has his powers. Right. Um, this kind of confessional moment that's meant to establish a kind of mutual partaking of existence in masculinity, but in reality what it is, it's this kind of unbeknownst to Zach, this like personal intimate moment about the anxiety about not achieving that. Um, mm -hmm. And then as the movie develops and as Will does eventually develop super strength, the distance that it puts between them, the fact that yeah. kind of Nick, uh, Zach and Will have this bond that they share as they're both in hero support. And then the distance that gets put between them when now Zach is the one who has to question his masculinity in the face of Will, who's now at least supposedly fully achieved it. Exactly. Um, their changing roles are really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it, uh, there, you know, there sort of has to be a happy ending for for Will and Layla. So I think that it comes out the most in sort of the the dynamic that the two of them have and then don't have. Where mm. you know, with, with with him and Layla, they're sort of they're 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 sort of always on the level, um, even though they're they're driven apart by outside forces. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's something that I think if the movie if the movie were made today, I would hope it would be explored more. But mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I feel like this is the perfect time to bring up my favorite character and Will's foil, War and Peace. Yeah. And like Layla as a character, as much as she has a really interesting and complicated, I don't think her actual journey in the actual movie is as interesting and complex as it could have been because the character that she is is really interesting. And in the movie, she ends up being kind of attached to Will and then attached to Warren Will's foil. Yeah, I think by virtue of it of it being Will's story, there's sort of a tendency to make her the immovable object. She's sort of not allowed to uh, go through peaks and valleys uh, mm -hmm. as much as as much as Will is. I agree. And I feel like that's such a shame because her like and maybe this is the SJW and me, but I feel like her as the kind of narrator of the injustice happening with the separation between heroes and hero support. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like she, her actual character is as interesting as Will's and she could have been the main character of the movie as a person who, at least in theory, air quotes, should have been a hero um, and willfully chose to exist in the hero support social position. And that uh, revolutionary element is like, kind of sort of there and how the movie ends but it feels like the the way that things are set up it feels like there's a satisfying ending there where the this system is even more so overturned and Layla is sort of at the forefront of that uh element yes and I weirdly feel like having Will be the main character of the movie and having Will move from hero support to the hero class weirdly kind of re-codifies the role and instead of it actually being revolutionary we would just get kind of a, a reform based ending where people right. are like hero support are important too but the social categories of hero and hero support hero and sidekick still exist <laughs> which also can we get into the hero support sidekick like semantics thing because they clearly treat the word sidekick as if it's like a slur almost <laughs> they do yeah um, I mean, in the coming out scene, there's uh, Will says, "I'm a sidekick." No, wait, I'm a hero support. Yeah. Like, like it's a it's it's a declaration <laughs> um, <laughs> that he has. Yeah, I, I definitely think that 
that element is there. And again, it's really, they do it in a really interesting way where I think a lot of films would just be like, you can't say that word. Uh, but, but this one, so there, there's sort of a, a callousness which, with which most of the hero characters do use it. And even some of the hero support characters do. Um, mm-hmm. yes. And then again, with Will being the main character of the movie and the ending being the way that it is where Will does not single-handedly, right. With the support of all of his friends, um, save the day. Uh, but I still think with Will as the main character, again, it, we end up with reform right? Like Will is the hero. He is the archetype. He doesn't actually subvert expectations. He meets and exceeds expectations. He is, we're proven wrong that he's the underdog. We do not uplift and elevate the underdog. We don't abolish the social categories of hero and hero support. Instead, we just say that hero support is cool now, I guess. Yeah, I do like how all the hero support characters powers become like necessary for for saving the day like you mm. know they, they'll have to put their abilities to it and you know it wouldn't work without all of them but mm-hmm. uh the, the conclusion is not as satisfying as it could be yeah this is a tangent but i have the exact same problem with frozen 2 anyway oh sure <laughs> what the thing i wanted to say about war and peace we can get back into him he, yes please such a great character in so many ways i i villains are an element that are a little underexplored in the in the mythos of this world they're you know clearly yeah. not at the forefront but there are like two significant characters who that you know it plays into their their roles in a major way and the information we get about around them about villains is so weird like the movie makes it very clear that villains go to hero high school Mm -hmm. villains are anticipated to be heroes and at least in part because of the social structure separating heroes and hero support um origin story of royal pain right was because her power wasn't appreciated in the time she existed she was put on the hero support track and that's her villain origin story like villains are just heroes yeah and then the the bullies are uh sort of have villain arcs over the over the course of the film i mean they're really villains right out of the gate i think but it's uh yeah a whole interesting thing that's not explored well yeah they begin to victimize who we have already become attached to as the heroes of the movie um and then of course their attachment to royal pain and their role in an evil scheme i feel like really solidifies their position as villains my thing with warren as will's foil there's something so interesting about how there's this scene with layla and warren at the chinese restaurant and first of all Ward is so charming in that scene it's such a (laughs) great little ponytail And the juxtaposition between his ponytail and his hair that hangs over his face in school, like just the way his hair is used as a symbol, I think is great. So great. But then towards the end of the movie, he has a parallel scene with Will. Yeah. Well, and getting into Warren as a foil for Will, right? Will has two perfect hero parents. Warren has a villain parent and an inactive hero parent, right? So a failed hero parent and a villain parent. So then already, right, like their family dynamics are opposite. Like they are set up to be narrative opposites cosmically, right, by the writers of the movie, obviously, but by their circumstances in the world of the movie. And then I think it's really interesting that one of them has super strength and one of them has fire powers because they both kind of inhabit this hyper-masculine 
niche of superpowers but then warren's of course being the firepower is this like highly destructive more kind of negatively connotated power whereas super strength despite being you know the parts of super strength that are useful when being a hero in many cases are also destructive it doesn't have that kind of negative connotation in the same way that fire does so i just i think they're really interesting but then That's really interesting we see layla leave will right she's will's ally they're on the level and then they have a conflict because she feels ignored and rejected and so she leaves and goes to warren and her and warren have this kind of intimate moment where they relate to each other and then will is the odd man out as he's faffing about with uh gwen and then it takes this intimate moment with warren for will to like realize that he's being stupid and kind of figure out what he needs I mean, there are a couple interesting things about that dynamic, but I just think of this scene where they are teammates in Save the Citizen. And I, I don't know, it, it comes at a, at a delicate point in their relationship. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they do work together and they do save the citizen, but they, you know, it, it sort of ends bitterly for them. And and Warren seems to be upset with with Will for like, gloating and uh in terms of the the, like i think i get what you're saying the dynamics of save the citizen are so interesting because the construct of the situation requires them to work together to achieve a goal right um but they hate each other (laughs) and so we see them failing to work together at the beginning and they only manage to do so at the very end because like as time is ticking down at the last second because Warren's life is literally in danger. Right. And Will is like, fuck, I have to save his life. And so he saves Warren's life and then, right, like throws Warren across the whole place. So it's still like, it doesn't end with them being perfectly buddy-buddy within the specific Save the Citizen context. And then, you know, there's other stuff too. But um, Will has to save Warren's life. And I feel like that moment is like a, a turning point almost in like mm-hmm. their trust and their ability to to work together um yeah it's true it's sort of a, a the first glimpse of their like eventual warming up to each other I guess the first thing we get is when they're in detention and Will tries to for one reason or another tries to be be amicable mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's a and, self-preservation uh, uh, Warren rejects it Which Absolutely. I feel like yeah. Warren also recognizes and that's part of the reason he rejects it right like will is like just trying to make nice and warren is like no (laughs) yeah it's very interesting that warren does warm up to will in the process of pretending to be dating layla to make him jealous which it's so funny because in that i feel like it's through layla's lens that he gets to understand will which is interesting because he's not seeing will through Layla's lens when Layla has positive feelings about him. <laughs> and so it's like really interesting for Warren to be like allied with Layla um, and trying to do what like works for her and like keeps her, you know, not really sad. <laughs> but in that he like learns their dynamic and kind of like learns, sees why Layla likes Will and why it hurts her to see him making bad choices. And so Warren gets mad at him, not for the reasons he originally didn't like him for, the entitlement, the like, all of the negative things that the commander archetype represents, um, and instead gets mad at him for making choices against what he now kind of believes is Will's nature, um, which is to be caring. (laughs) 
And Warren's scene with Will that parallels his scene with Layla is the end of that journey. That's the, you know, (laughs) it's the point where he's come to understand Will in the same way that he is able to warm up to Layla in that, in that context, he's, he can now do the same Mm -hmm. with Will. Yeah, no, it's great. And I just love that my favorite device in a movie, my favorite narrative device to be used in a movie is for one of the characters to be like, it's stupid that we're not just talking about this and then revealing whatever the secret thing is. And so for Warren to be like, the only reason we're going to prom together was to make you jealous. I just love it. I also think there's something about like the red lighting in that scene and how it's something that maybe is is, is like more at home for Warren, but also again, talking about the, the use of Dutch angles that sort of, the straight shots sort of represent wherever a character does feel at home. Mm. And like in, in, in that context, we're sort of in, in Warren's home at this, at this yeah, restaurant. Absolutely. Which I agree. You brought this up earlier when talking about Layla's scene at the restaurant, the way that he is legitimately more relaxed, more exposed. He's wearing a tank top. His hair is back. Um, the tone of voice he uses to speak is different. Um, he speaks Cantonese to his grandma, which is really cute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just like it. Which also, I think it's beautiful to have gotten the context of his family life being troubled, right? Having an incarcerated villain father, having a, a an inactive hero mother, and then to get this bit of information where he is speaking to his grandma at the restaurant, right? Like the subtitles, or no, he calls her grandma. Um, and so we get to see this like positive familial relationship that's really exciting. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of that, but it was very cool. <laughs> Getting back into the, the narrative flow of things, there's the uh, the power placement scene, which we've already talked about a little bit. One of the few, you know, the the whole plot hole thing I'm not really about, but one uh, fun thing I did note is that they break uh, placement for lunch and they're like, they'll get to Will after lunch, which means they were, they were doing placement all morning and hadn't gotten to everyone yet. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense. I have noticed that before, and I think it's funny um, that placement takes a full day. It shouldn't, but whatever. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, when they get there, everyone else is already there. So it seems like they also arrived late for the first day. I mean, maybe, you know, when you put it all together, it adds up. But there are uh, some fun uh, PA announcements. It's another thing that mostly happens in the first half hour. I feel I feel like there's, it's interesting how it sets up this coming out narrative and then like, pivots after the actual coming out scene or when he like gets his powers Mm -hmm. that like things that were set up before that I feel like are not explored as much after it sort of takes on a different Mm -hmm. tone but speaking of PA announcements when they first go to lunch right after the power place first power placement scene um one of the PA announcements in the lunchroom is saying uh that hero support aren't allowed to order the hero sandwiches and it's just like wow, way to sprinkle in structural discrimination as like just a side reference. Like Yeah, as wordplay, yeah. And they and they call them sidekicks in the announcement, <laughs> which is wild. Oh my gosh, wait, yeah. <laughs> uh, we get uh, the school nursing with Cloris Leachman, which is uh, a small role, but I think she's so funny <laughs> in, in, that, in that one Delightful. scene. I also love just the small detail of her pulling the lollipop out of Will's hand and handing him the tongue depressor and the look (laughs) on his face where he's like, this is worse. 
Yeah, she's, you know, really making the most of that space. I also love the moment in that scene where we get some more insight into the backstory of uh, Ron, the bus driver. Yeah, another really interesting character that, that he comes from the same background as Will, and he's someone who never got his power. Which also another thing that I think where the movie kind of dilutes its own message, um, he exists as this kind of cautionary tale um, at the beginning part of the movie where Will is like, oh gosh, this could be my future, how sad to be the bus driver. And then as the movie develops, we see him and the importance of his role in the movie and the fact that he is like there for Will and able to take Will to the school for the climax part. And then the role he plays in that part directly like preventing uh, one of the villains from getting away with the infants. If you've seen the movie, it makes sense. All of that, right? He gets built up into this like role of being like, oh no, he's just as important. And then the movie is like, and then he fell into a vat of radioactive waste and he became a superhero. And it's like, why does he have to become a superhero? Why does that have to be his happy ending? Yeah, I, I agree. But but up to that point, it is a, a really interesting and really effective <laughs> character Absolutely. that they bring in there. I'll say about the, the twist with uh, Gwen being the villain, I'm sure it's something that when I was a kid, it just like blew my mind um, watching it this time, having not seen it since then. I picked up on her being up to something mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure what it was, but I recognized Jim Rash as the jester in those in those brief scenes we see of him, you know, as the jester. And then he shows up as Gwen's dad in another scene. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, no. And like, I've seen the movie so many times at this point that I don't remember what it was like for me to watch it for the first time at all except I remember being completely gagged by the Gwen royal pain transformation scene where her suit Mm -hmm. like envelops her I just loved it yeah it's a cool suit too Mm -hmm. and uh I I also just just speaking to Jim Rash as the as the gesture it's you know another like very slight role that he's in but he's just completely off the wall with it and having so much fun my favorite roles for jim rash are when he's being like a weird gay little freak <laughs> and i yeah. love him in this movie as a weird gay little freak you can so write the write the dean onto onto this character because i i mean just I, I i feel like there's such a drag element when we when we get the scene of him as the dad and yeah. he's like this very like stern and quiet <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of character it's absolutely like so great dad realness we get the scene of uh, the commander showing Will the secret sanctum, which we were talking about. He shows him all the all the trophies, and he Will is about to come out to him, and then he doesn't uh, because he's you know he gushing about yeah. You know that moment is revealed that Steve's latest trophy is a, a spy camera. This is this is the moment where I made a note about uh, Zach being like red as Will's sexual awakening, but I don't recall what actually happened at this point in the movie that made me say that (laughs) i I can't think of what it would be (laughs) but i'm desperate to know it was around this same time where uh will says will and layla are up in the tree and will says you have an awesome power and you could have been a hero easy and layla says i'm not into labels (laughs) which i made a note Um, but yeah, I, like I said, I think that's, you know, the Will and, the Will and Zach dynamic is something that's mostly explored in the first half hour. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we're introduced to the sidekick teacher, uh, Dave Foley, Mr. Boy. Mr. Who... Boy. Which, <laughs> if we want to talk about symbols in this movie of masculinity and characters being emasculated by their powers or lack mm-hmm. thereof, his name being Mr. Boy. <laughs> like, come on. Absolutely. And I, I love that whole bit about how he was the commander in Jetstream's sidekick and like... He is probably too busy to open all of those scrapbooks I made for him. Exactly. And then there's there's the line later in the, in the coming out scene when the when the commander is like, you know, my sidekick saved my once, <laughs> saved my life once. Oh, uh, what's his name? <laughs> I know the one-sidedness of the relationship is really tragic and really good writing it's really tragic i like that they come together at the end and uh and and the commander like you know does this does this little spiel for him i it's another thing that i think is sort of underexplored by the ending Mm -hmm. but like good character yeah and i do love the montage of them practicing their quick changes which speaking of nicholas braun and zach when he tries to do his quick change and he hops out in his little white boxers that image of him. Yeah. <laughs> he's funny. It's He's a funny character. It's interesting because he reads as a comic relief character, but then if you get into it a little bit deeper, he really is this like kind of representation of the anxiety of trying to achieve this masculinity all of the male heroes are aspiring to. So, Yeah, he's really the most like internally fucked character oh, in the whole movie. Easily. But like, and that whole montage is him. You, you know, they're all sort of having fun, learning how to be si- learning how to be sidekicks. And and Will is. Um, I keep stopping myself when I'm about to say sidekick. The way they position the word sidekick in the movie is just so funny. And uh, you know, Will is warming up to it. I really like that sort of uh, part of the story where you know he's obviously being so like beaten down about not being a hero at home but then he like gains so much from from that experience but I was going to say that Zach is sort of continually this montage is punchlines of Zach you know uh messing up in one way or another and there's there's the quick change thing there's there's um this moment I didn't quite get where the mad scientist teacher has like this this rock that that he takes out and then Layla and uh, Magenta Magenta yeah they they faint and then he takes it out again and then Zach faints and yeah. <laughs> Will looks over like what's that I I didn't uh, know exactly what that signified but I thought it was interesting um, well just, and I just, do just sort of aligning Zach with the with the with the women in the film proximity in a to way. femininity well and then the maybe this is a stretch but the erectile dysfunction metaphor of the grappling hook thingy and him like bouncing up and down and then falling yeah i mean th- that's a little bit of a totally. analysis uh <laughs> derogatory <Up> sky high <laughs> yeah that montage is followed pretty quickly by the coming out scene uh the, the, this coming out scene we've been talking around this whole time uh. the I thought it was a funny line when the commander like comes in and sees everyone and talking all big. He's obviously like a celebrity. And then he's like, uh, I make a mean tuna fish sandwich. Do any of you want one? And they're like, no. <laughs> 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 the other room. 
because because it's a it's a really I mean I think emotionally there's so much uh great stuff going on in this whole scene but the way that he like has them go around and tell him what their powers are and then is, and his is just sort of... when he's reacting to them another element of just like this kind of being a great Kurt Russell performance <laughs> like he, he he's there there's no like surface level malice in his performance night like 90 percent of the time at least but like you can him being the you know him putting this pressure on people in these really subtle ways yes well it's so well done and there's no overt malice but you see the twitch of disapproval the like the the cocked eyebrow of confusion exactly yeah and then will goes into the kitchen follows his dad into the kitchen and he's like so those kids are what passes for heroes in this day or whatever he says he says something really kind of shady and derogatory to will um and will is like well actually yeah will will says they're sidekicks and steve says good for you son hanging out with a bunch of sidekicks as a freshman i didn't have the guts and i can't imagine what your grandfather would have said if i brought some of them home i know I know it's like the, they're laying the metaphor on so thick I don't the people who wrote that movie had to know that people would read it in a gay way because that's so yeah I mean again we don't we don't know a lot about Paul Hernandez but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he had that in mind because it's just it's so effectively done in such a nuanced way that it's you know yes but uh there's a really f- interesting escalation in the scene where at first he's like their sidekicks and then there's nothing wrong with being a sidekick. And uh, the commander says, of course not. <laughs> and then and then Will says, so you'd be fine if I was a sidekick. And the commander's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, like he's not even really thinking about it. He's like, hey, hand me that mayonnaise. Well, and again, back to the willful ignorance sort of thing. Like the, it's not even that Will is dropping hints, right? Like Will is softening the blow for himself. But it is like Kurt Russell's character, the commander is more willing to believe that the hero placement coach boomer guy um, was trying to get back at him by putting his powerful kid in hero support then he is willing to believe that Will would actually be a sidekick. Yeah, and that was that was really resonant to me in a in, in just a, a metaphorical thing about coming out. But mm-hmm. like the fact that like once the bomb has dropped, his first reaction is to like I mean, a, just to to like blame a teacher, but to 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 be like someone else is doing this to you to to hurt me. Hurt me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The, and then the just like immediate eruption of rage and his inability to control himself to the point that he breaks the phone like this is a moment in the film where I feel like the commander's facade kind of breaks in a way and it's really emotionally effective absolutely I do think it's funny that he has a drawer full of phones for when he breaks one (laughs) I like that little bit a good little gag. Um, first, he thinks it's the it, it's the coach, and then and then Will's like, "No, I just uh, I, I I just don't have powers." And he's like, "But you never said you made it seem like." And then at the end of this confrontation, he says, "You're just a late bloomer." I know. He's like, "You'll get there eventually." The response is and- denial. The response is complete denial, and at no point is it even an option to him to actually accept the fact that his kid is not a hero air quotes basically will is like it might never happen and then sort of leaves uh leaves the room in silence and then everyone in the next room is like comforting him yeah but it's interesting because the level the comfort is not overt 
right? Like they recognize that they overheard a vulnerable situation. And so when he sits back down, his friends are all just like, we're here, we got you. And then they kind of get back into what they were doing. Yeah, I, just this whole scene is done with so much like just emotional honesty. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's it's really delicately handled. And again, like a, like a really cartoony uh, Disney live action movie. Yeah. <laughs> like well, they... And also that moment still manages to have a bunch of hilarious little bits in it, like the phone drawer. Like yeah. it's, yeah, it's really well done. We, we get a, a little scene of um, Commander and Jetstream sort of talking about it. And uh, the, the line I have from the commander in that scene is all I wanted for him was to save the world. That's again, just a, a sort of resonant thing about how his plan for will is ruptured by this revelation like he just just sort of had a a a plan for like how will's future was gonna go and he sort of sees this as a failure as a parent even though he's not like you know he he says it's fine to be a sidekick but like he considers it a failure for his son to be one well and i do i think it's such a poignant element of the gay metaphor right for him to be like to have an image of his son that lived in his heart that he loved and then to have Will's reality be something that like feels like it's been taken from him. Exactly. Uh, And then suddenly (laughs) (laughs) in this confrontation with War and Peace, in a confrontation with War and Peace, Will suddenly accesses his powers, his, his super strength. Part of me feels like this turn in the story, like, like I don't know, I, I think it's less effective than what the film was up to this point. I agree. I mean, again, with Will being like, psych, he's a hero, though, undermines all of the kind of very delicate um, and nuanced messages they've been building about the fundamentally flawed nature of the roles of hero and sidekick. You know, I like the impulse to sort of go in a new direction at this point in the story and have like a, a sudden change. And I could see the logic of to someone who, again, is probably not as aware of the of the subtext to be like, well, if, if he is actually is a hero, then that'll add a whole new layer to this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, there is something to that. But yeah, like I said, I think that there is a, like you said, a very delicate metaphor that is being laid out up to that point. And in this moment, it feels like it doesn't really pull off having that metaphor continue. Yeah, no, I agree. To be fair, though, I think that it is a really interesting emotional and narrative choice for Will's character, right? Because Mm -hmm. he experiences all of this. He has this emotional experience where he like genuinely comes to accept what he up to this point has been told to believe is an inferior social position. And he like develops this community and this kind of pride in his community. And then Mm -hmm. by gaining the thing that was preventing him from accessing this higher level of society he leans in he leans into being a hero and so he gets the hero girlfriend and he ignores his hero support friends like he won't speak up for them in the lunch scene when he's trying to eat lunch with Gwen and Penny the multiplying cheerleader fills up the rest of the seat so his friends can eat with them he doesn't say anything right so we have this kind of 180 um, I guess in this case, a face heel turn where he is now aligned with the side of uh, of the villains. And he his objects of affection turn from 
Layla and Zach to uh, Gwen and Warren, who are in one form or another aligned with this villain archetype that mm-hmm. that, that, as we've said, is sort of is sort of underexplored in the film. But um, it's not just that he is leaning into being a hero and he's like going around saving the day. Like he's aligning with these. The, the way that he, you know, he uses uh, the, the bully characters to like help his friends, but they, but he puts himself on the level of, of, of those bully characters and just all the characters in the film who are sort of on that villain side of the spectrum become sort of the, uh, the, the things that he's drawn towards mm-hmm. when he, when he reaches that level. And with, with Warren, it's obviously a, a slow thing and one that it sort of comes as he comes around because he, you know, is not a villain at the end of the day, mm-hmm. but uh Yeah. Going back at it from a high school movie perspective, I think the allure of a senior girlfriend, right? Like the fact that he's like with the popular kids, the fact like that whole thing. I think I think the superhero metaphor and the high school setting align really, really effectively. Um, and so like yeah. in moving his social role from the kind of loser position to the popular position and that parallel move from the kind of hero support sidekick position to not what appears on the surface is the hero position but is actually the villain position and coming back around to again warren who appears as the villain position but is actually a hero position absolutely which and actually a, a sidekick position i didn't say well and thinking also again of warren as will's narrative foil um his role is this kind of like misunderstood People expect him to be a certain way. They have all of these expectations built up for him as well. It's just his expectations, the things that he is expected to become are negative. He is expected to become a villain. People treat him already as a villain because of that. But he does actually manage to kind of subvert the expectations of himself. This is a movie. as Many movies fall into this trap. But I feel like Warren and Layla actually both have potentially more interesting emotional journeys to go on than Will does <laughs> because of it's the true. fact that they manage to actually subvert the expectations of them, whereas Will starts to uh, and then actually reinforces the expectations of him. I guess the, I'm I'm like kind of sort of trying to draw a line between Warren and Zach. And I guess what it is, is that if this were the movie that it is in the first half hour, you know, the, the fact that Zach is this, character with whom the masculinity barrier is broken and uh you know this this sort of confidant um Mm -hmm. i see that in that version of the movie there's something to be done between those two where in this one he sort of has to he's at the end of the day like at the end of his rope he turns to warren who is the the one character most closed off to him yeah and i do think it's because they kind of share this experience of having all of this weight and pressure because of family history and family expectations and needing to kind of climb out from under that. Yeah. An interesting thing about the Gwen character, from the time that she and Will are dating, you sort of basically have the impression that she's up to something. But I really like the way that she is introduced as they get to sky high and as just like this you know and and you know i feel like this is a a great high school experience of you know it's your first day of high school and there's this this really put together senior who who just you're sort of impossibly uh drawn to right off the bat and putting her in that position it sort of makes the her her allure as the, the the thing that sort of pulls him over to the quote unquote hero side um makes sense but I also feel like it it sets her up 
for for there to be a turn in her even though like the turn is already happening by the time she's the the girlfriend it's just something that comes in right out of the gate yeah no and i do think that one of the really interesting kind of sub messages of this movie is uh, this is like a watered down version of what i'm trying to say but like the dark sides of having power structurally right like Mm -hmm. in this case the dual meaning of like having superpowers, but also having structural power is like we see what not to do, elements of what not to do in Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell's emotional journey um, to having to kind of let go of some of those things if he wants to actually be good. But then we see with Gwen, she has the structural power, right? She's the most popular, um, most beautiful senior in the school Mm -hmm. um she's the head of the homecoming committee she's the student body president she's etc 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 and being the head of the homecoming committee in a way gives her power over the commander yes because then she is able to get him to homecoming which is a huge part of the whole conceit of her evil scheme I think it's interesting just considering all the metaphorical elements, the the parts of this uh, of this scheme that come together, where she, where she is like preventing him from going to the Chinese restaurant and getting the commander and Jetstream to go to Homecoming, which is this space where she intends to be very publicly with Will. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I think the. All of the scenes that involve Gwen being at Will's house are really interesting. So the scene where she's studying with him and then stays for dinner and gets the commander and Jetstream to go to homecoming. And then the later scene where she's like, oh God, there's a homecoming committee emergency. Can they come here so we can spend more time together? Ooh. And then it's a party to distract Will so that she can steal the pacifier. Yeah, and just, you know, a, a lot of interesting uh, stuff there about sort of the the pressure that she's putting on Will is putting him in the in, in this popular kid position and sort of pressuring him to step up in that regard. Mm-hmm. And like part, part of that being like having this this parental pressure be applied to homecoming where she's sort of having this ultimate display of power over him and also she being royal pain this ultimate display of power over the commander Jetstream, mm-hmm. uh turning them into babies which feels sort of non sequitur but maybe it isn't i don't know <laughs> i do love the baby element i think it's so silly <laughs> i think that it is part of what makes the movie so freaking funny um but thinking about gwen and her the way she uses her power literally and figuratively But then, so the conflict that Will and his parents have over his decision to not go to homecoming after he sees Gwen for who she truly is when she snubs Layla at the same party. They have this conflict where his parents are like, you have to go to homecoming. We have to go as a family. We're presenting the stronghold three, right? This expectation, this image that they've cultivated. And he says that he won't go, right? That it's, this is the moment He's like, I'm making the decision. I am going to go against my parents' expectations of me. After breaking up with Gwen. After breaking up with Gwen. So narratively, right, it's this huge moment where he's like, no, I'm I'm saying no to this. But then it's essential, right? Because that rejection is what allows him to be available to save the day. Um, So yeah, no, I think that that small, the party scene and the subsequent like aftermath of the party when his parents come home to find the party is like just a really narratively dense um, and important section. Yeah. Some real, just some really great, like that, that 
parallel taking back the power thing is really good. There's also something interesting about, I mean, I sort of nodded towards this earlier, but about the sanctum. I mean, after his his first day at Sky High, the commander like brings Will into the sanctum, which he's never let anyone into before. And as he's bringing him in, he says like, first of all, he tells him to take the the poll that uh, Jetstream takes, the <laughs> that his mother takes. Yep. Which is... <laughs> Yeah. interesting Proximity but like one of the first things yeah and one of the first things he says is that you can't bring anyone into the sanctum mm-hmm. and this the, the sort of undoing comes when he brings uh gwen into the sanctum i don't know i just i, I don't know what the sanctum represents but i think it's a really striking image yeah well and i do think um to go back to what you were saying earlier about the use of dutch angles we see the sanctum in primarily straight on angles, right? When the commander first brings Will in. Um, But then at the end of that scene, we get the shot of the sanctum from the camera in the helmet and it becomes clear to us that it is not actually a safe place. Uh, And then in the following scene in the sanctum where Will is supposed to be being berated by his dad for getting into a fight at school, that whole scene is all in straight angles, right? And it shows us that like the sanctum is a place because he doesn't actually end up getting berated. He gets a gift because he got his powers. And so it's just like a moment where it's supposed to be another kind of safe, positive experience. But then when we get to the scene during the party where Gwen is down there, we get multiple shots of the sanctum from weird Dutch angles, including the shot of the shadow running past the pacifier and grabbing it while Gwen and Will, are they kissing? I don't know. They're distracted with each other. It's just, yeah, using your uh, analysis earlier uh, that the Dutch angles kind of represent when things get haywire, when things are no longer kind of a, a safe and homey place um the way they're used to represent the infiltration of the sanctum is really interesting yeah and this is something i just thought of but commander tells will don't bring anyone into the sanctum he brings gwen into the sanctum and he feels responsible for everything that happens because he brought gwen into the sanctum except because of that spy camera in that same scene where the commander told will not to bring anyone into the sanctum he brought gwen into the sanctum yeah and that's one of the trophies from his battle. I know, right? So he is the original one, right? His behavior of always bringing in trophies is the thing that actually undermines the safety of the sanctum, right? So again, we get this message that kind of the the evil is the entitlement and the like superiority that can come, that historically has come from the role of hero. Absolutely. Sorry, there's one more thing, bringing it back to the soundtrack, if we're getting into talking about the end of the movie. When he first walks into Sky High, the song that starts playing is Can't Stop the World. Um, And then when he saves the school, when he feels like he's earned his position of structural social power within the school, the song that's playing is I'll Melt With You, which the lyrics are I'll Stop the World and Melt With You. And so they'll just like the way the soundtrack is used to narratively bookend this growth that he has in his social position at Sky High, I think is really well done. I think it's really cool. Also, we get a second surprise power reveal um at exactly the opportune moment which is silly but fun yeah we got a cameo of uh tom kenny and jill talley as this this couple who's <laughs> who's uh, who just bought this house they're feeling great about it <laughs> and then skull comes crashing from the sky which i love yeah. tom kenny is the husband in that relationship going back to our extended analysis of masculinity in this movie and the fact that he faints after it ends like mm-hmm. he is 
the wife is the one comforting him. He's the one who's more kind of like neurotic and unstable um, in the whole yeah. school about to crash onto the house thing. And then he thinks he's just funny though. I love Tom Kenny. And now I'm just thinking about the the Linda Carter character who, <laughs> who we haven't even really touched on yet. But kind of Linda the... Carter is in this movie. How is it not the best <laughs> yeah. movie ever? Linda Carter is in it. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, she's sort of the, I mean, she's the principal. She's like the the, the buck stops with her. Mm-hmm. Well, and going way back to the first kind of third of the movie, the first act of the movie with Warren and Will in detention, right? And the power she mm-hmm. holds over them when they both realize that their powers don't work in there, I think is really interesting. Also, side note about that scene, when Warren tries to use his powers in the power quenching detention room, his he makes a lighter clicking sound which I think is incredible. That's so good. I love that. So yeah, that does take us into the climax though. And we've already touched on uh, a number of elements here. The baby thing, I think I, part of me does want to believe that it's just like a, a non sequitur thing. And it's definitely the sort of thing that like I, as a five-year-old would have like nightmares about just, just, you know, mm-hmm. non sequitur shit like that. But with, with how much is going on in this movie, I, I, I feel like they're, I mean, there's definitely something to be said for, I don't know, time and parenting and the fact that she was turned into a baby and then raised by her, like, henchman as 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 her father, like... Yeah, well, and I do think it's kind of the ultimate removal of the power of the adult superheroes in that circumstance, if we're thinking about it as this dual superhero high school movie. We have the valence of, like heroes versus sidekicks but then we also have the valence of like adults versus high school student or older person versus high school student or teacher versus high school student and so to have these characters in the movie who are all the authority and all the power the adult heroes be turned into babies (laughs) is kind of the ultimate removal of that yeah and puberty is power in this movie yes the analogy is directly made when Zach connects getting his powers to shaving, right? He was like, I was shaving by the time I was 10 um, and I don't even have my powers yet or whatever it is that he says. So, right. Yeah, no, it is like they're directly connected. There's something about uh, parenting and, and, and parent child relationships in it too, but mm-hmm. I, I haven't thought about it enough to say what. Mm, yeah. It is interesting that her plan is to turn them into babies to raise them to be villains, right? Because Mm -hmm. we get back into this idea of like the expectations placed on super children or children of superheroes. Um, And that like, if they are raised in a certain way, they will become villains. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I, I mean, again, the villain thing is sort of underexplored in general, but there's the fact that Warren was, I mean, we're led to believe that he was, raised by a villain or at least uh you know was was inherited there's, there's villainous an qualities <laughs> there's an assumption that he inherited those qualities and he didn't but uh yeah i don't know if there's something there <laughs> yeah yeah i feel like there are so many things this movie could have said about the socially constructed relationships and roles of hero sidekick and villain that it just didn't get into because it was a Disney movie made for teens. <laughs> um, but, yeah. yeah. And we find out that, uh, I, I mean, we've known that Layla is very powerful, but, you know, we get to see that in action in this moment and, and the extent of her power. Right. Yeah. Again, I feel like Layla 
should have been the main character of this movie, right? Because the yeah. the role that she has, she never shirks her position. She never like maligns her position as a sidekick. She just like uses her powers effectively when it's appropriate. Um, and the whole conversation she has with Penny, where Penny is like, I thought you were a sidekick. And she says, I am a sidekick. I just feel like is like a better distillation of the message they were setting up at the beginning of the movie than anything that happens with Will. Yeah. And I guess that maybe she is too, you know, I mean, like I was saying earlier, she's not really in this film allowed to like go through turns and make mistakes the way that, uh, the way that Will is. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe it's sort of a a backwards thing where because she's, she's so, self-assured and unwavering she can't really uh function as as main character in the story but i i would have liked to see her go through more of a journey i would have liked to see her yeah yeah and and, you know i think she's a character who could have that sense of that sense of self-doubt be brought into her character in a really interesting way Mm -hmm. no i agree i do think that scene is really specifically the scene where layla uses her powers to incapacitate Penny, right? Her particular essential part of um, having a happy ending to the movie is really, really strong. Um, and I wish Layla's character had gotten to be more dynamic because she does end up being one dimensional in a way that's disappointing thematically. Yeah. And as I said, I also really like how Ron becomes essential to the plan as well. Yes. Uh, although they don't exactly stick the landing with him, it's really well done. And it's not like, it's sort of because of his powers as a bus driver, which I think is a, is a, is a really fun sort of, he's sort of like the, the laborer character mm-hmm. in, the, in the film. He's the one who's coming from that position. And I, I feel like it's a, a good resolution for, for him in that regard. Yeah, I agree. And I do like, the message of the movie that they end up watering down is like everybody has their role to play and is important. Even people without powers have some have power. Powers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I agree with you. They do another comic book voiceover, right? The animated thing right at the end. I think mm-hmm. what Will says is that uh, his girlfriend became his worst enemy. His best friend became his girlfriend and his worst enemy became his best friend. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was in that order, but the fact that he calls Warren his best friend is is a, an interesting thing. I agree. That, uh... <laughs> Their relationship is almost entirely developed through Layla as a device, almost. Um, like we don't actually get to see them interact on their own in positive ways, which is a shame in my opinion. My, especially when I was like 14 and 15, I really wanted them to be gay for each other. Yeah, it's, uh, we just get, like I said, that one scene in the in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I mean, he's basically saying in that moment that, that Warren has become for me what Layla was for me at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's really, it is, the subtext is really gay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, that's sky high. <laughs> Boy, fucking howdy. Not, I mean, not a perfect film, certainly, but I have many critiques. Yeah, clearly, but we, <laughs> you know, uh, a stellar cast. I think a, a unilaterally great cast. Um, it does so much more than it needed to, and I think that's whenever it's something like a like a Dis- like a, a Disney live action movie, mm-hmm. or you know, you're really just looking for something that like goes above and beyond. And I feel like Sky High, and just just in terms of kids movies, like 
has so much like there's so much thoughtfulness in how the world is constructed and how the the characters are constructed it, it's really top shelf i agree i think it's an incredible movie and for all the crit- critiques i do have of it it's my favorite movie <laughs> when people ask me what my favorite <laughs> movie is i tell them it's sky high <laughs> nico thank you so much for joining <laughs> me on this this incredible conversation about sky high It's been my absolute pleasure. Sky High is one of my favorite things to talk about, and you're one of my favorite people to talk about things with. It's been great. It's been exciting. I've learned a lot. And uh, yeah, just a a really great film. To the people who have been listening up to this point, thank you so much for sticking with us. If you like this show, you can support it on Substack, share it with your friends on social media. It's one of the best things you can do. Let people know you like the show. And uh, yeah, I will see y'all next week.